morning, diners. Uh, you're listening to On the Menu with Ben and Peter Haig. And boy, this show is for you if you're a wine lover, because yeah, that's is, what we're going to be talking about. You know, frequently we talk about diners, now we're talking about winers. Winers, right. So, so, something like that. Yes. And, and then we start off um, with, wouldn't you love to be known as wine girl? <laughs> I, I guess so. Anyhow. Uh, Victoria James uh, has a very interesting tale about how she broke into the uh, psalm racket. <laughs> shall we say. She sure did, yeah. and 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 she she picked up a lot of knowledge along the way. Right. It'd be, be fun to explore a restaurant wine list with Victoria the wine girl. Yeah, the youngest psalm ever. I guess. Oh, or whatever we say. Any, anyway, okay. here, she, here she goes. Okay, recording has started. Yes, and we're so thrilled that to have Victoria James, who wrote this book, Wine Girl, that has so many issues involved in her story that um, I guess the subtitle, it's, it's not misleading, but it doesn't really encompass the whole point of the book. The subtitle is The Obstacles, Humiliations, and Triumphs I'm America's youngest sommelier. Now that's uh, uh, in this book, Wine Girl, is certainly the case. But we were talking, Victoria, and let's just jump back to the original idea that you had uh, for writing this book. Why did you write this book? Yeah, so I wrote Wine Girl because I wanted to give other young women the courage to come out and share their own stories and to know that they're not alone. And I think it can be quite empowering to share your own story. Um, And, uh, you know, hopefully we can band together and create real change in the hospitality industry. It's a lot to do. (laughs) There's a great deal to do. Go ahead. Yes, it, it is. Yeah, no, it is for sure uh, quite a bit to chew off, but I think that there are very few women who are in the position that I'm in where they actually hold a position of power and they're not in fear for their jobs. And if I if I didn't write this book, then, then who would? Um, so I wrote it for so many young women that I think needed to have that comfort uh, and that message. Describe, we're going to just jump to the ending and describe to our listeners where you are now and why you do have this power now. So currently I'm a sommelier and the beverage director and partner at Coke Korean Steakhouse, which is a Michelin-starred restaurant in the Flatiron District in Manhattan. And uh, there, you know, as, you know, a part owner, uh, I, it's my responsibility, I feel, to take care of all of our employees, both men and women. It's a staff of around 100 persons and to make them feel protected. So we have a zero tolerance harassment policy. Um, in addition to that, I also co-founded a 501c3 nonprofit called Wine Empowered, which offers tuition-free wine classes to women and minorities in the hospitality industry in an aim to diversify the upper ranks of leadership. And I also, I don't think that it's, um, I, I don't think that it's surprising that we've got like oh, great swathes of um, women-owned wineries, like the whole middle of Spain and so forth. 
and and the number of women in um, who sommeliers, there there's a special uh, talent I think that uh, uh, many women have uh, in 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 taste and and um, discernment. What do you think? Yeah, I um, you know it's interesting. There have been so many studies in regards to women's palates and tasting abilities. And there are some studies that show that uh, women specifically uh, at a certain age can uh, recall and memorize certain flavor profiles better than, uh, better than others. But more than anything, you know, I, I just want to be treated equally. I don't want you know, I don't want to be treated exceptionally. I just want to be treated ordinary, uh, just as other men are treated in the industry. Now, it wasn't an easy path, was it? No, it certainly wasn't. I think that, you know, I got into restaurants at a very young age when I was just 13 and worked my way up from greasy spoon diner waitress to bartender during university and then fell in love with wine, but I always felt like, well, one, I was definitely too young, but also too poor and definitely the wrong gender for the wine world. And I kept facing pushback, and I thought that if I just kept working in fancier places, uh, you know, one, two Michelin-starred dining rooms, the environment would be better. But instead, I found that the higher I climbed and the more my career grew, uh, the more toxic the environment. And eventually I realized that the environment had to be something that I, I created myself. Well, you know, um, I appreciate and understand and went through a little bit of this. Uh, uh, I mean, I was very attractive when I was your age as well. And uh, it's it's a curse on one hand because you're going to attract, depending on the yeah, cultural and sociological environment, um, the kinds of uh, Me Too battles with your male your male um, uh, colleagues. Uh, at the same time, that it also is an asset is you get noticed more and, and probably get more uh, better offers than somebody who is not so attractive. Yeah, I mean, to your point, I think that it's, it can be a double-edged sword and beauty can be power and it can also hinder one. I think it's, it's hard to look at it, um, you know, obviously, you know, it's hard to look at oneself um, without bias, but I do think that, unfortunately, you know, women are often judged based off of their looks and for them to have... Uh, beauty is to have merit, and I just feel as if that doesn't necessarily or shouldn't be the case, especially in restaurants. We put women in these positions as cocktail waitresses, hostesses, bartenders, <laughs> because we want them to be, you know, cute, and we want them to uh, attract maybe a certain clientele, but we're not protecting them, and um, we're not making them feel empowered um, or appreciated. And I think that, uh, you know, as women who, you know, have, have seen the effects of that double-edged sword, I think it's important that we kind of change that culture because I agree with you. It's, it, can be, it can be very damaging as much as it can be helpful. Well, you, you started out, I mean, if you're giving hope to uh, a lot of, of young women, um, boy, it'd be hard matching what a really rotten childhood you had. <laughs> I, mean, well, I don't you know, know how you survived. 
Yeah, I mean, it's always hard to compare trauma, I suppose. I, you know, very, I'm, I'm actually very lucky. I had two wonderful, uh, you know, I have some great siblings, uh, my brother and my sister, that yeah. really, you know, helped. And I don't think I would have done it without them. And I continue to have such great support. I have an amazing husband. Uh, you know, lots of years of therapy helps as well. Uh, but the restaurant industry did heal me. I, you know, I, there's something restorative about hospitality and making others happy made me happy. And it gave me purpose. It brought me joy. And I think that that is something that is often lost in a lot of uh, people getting into the restaurant world and the sommelier world. They get into it for the wrong reasons. And if you're in a role of servitude, you should want to make people happy. And I think those are the best restaurant experience I've the best restaurants I've been to are the ones in which you feel that restorative quality. Yeah, you mentioned, um, who was it? I can't remember the name of the character. Your characters are very interesting, by the way. Um, they're, I mean, they're all over the board, and, and you never know what they're going to eventually end up being. You know, you start out with one impression, and you, you're not sure how you're going to end up with them. But um, you had somebody who told you about this joy and uh, loving um, your, the people that you're working with, the customers, early on, and that that stuck with you. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, when I was a diner waitress, there was this guy named Frankie who, you know, yeah, had that this one. push broom, <laughs> this push broom mustache and all gray missing teeth and uh, smoked too many cigarettes. And he told me that the only way to find happiness is by making other people happy. And he gave me the secret of his love cycle by yes, not <laughs> by by finding a yeah by finding a way to connect with your guests. And it's not about. Uh, loving the outfit they're wearing. It's about finding their humanity and seeing them as a human being and finding a way to love what makes them uh, another human. Now, another asset you had is you have one of these um, inquisitive minds. Um, you, you were always a superstar student, and uh, you, you have a, a, a faculty for for memorizing details and, and studying and focusing. Now, that's a distinctive personality trait that not everybody has. That's fair. I love absorbing information like a sponge and, exactly. you know, growing. <laughs> yeah, and also, you know, I mean, growing up, we didn't really have a lot, and I always felt out of control with my childhood and my parents, and I found that with education and learning, it was the one thing in which I had power over. I could study something and learn it, and it, it just felt so empowering to be able to absorb this information and uh, do well in school, but also feel feel intelligent, and I just felt as if it was something no one could ever take away from me. Well, it comes through, and how you, first of all, responding to, this, this sommelier business is, is no piece of cake. I mean, it's tough. Um, I mean, we've we've done our share of, oh, Peter's much better at this than I am, but of these blind tasting wine groups where, I mean, the uh, tasting memories, I mean, the, the group, not only, we're not talking about just sort of recognizing the grape or, they, these people would know the grape, the uh, region, 
what side of the river it was on <laughs> the moment they tasted this wine. <laughs> I mean, it, and then you know, and that was that was really intimidating right there. It, that, I mean, yeah. and that's just the detail stuff. <laughs> Well, and I laughed, I chuckled loudly over some of your early tasting experiences because <laughs> they're such snobs for the most part, too. <laughs> and the language, it's another language. Well, that's also the tricky thing. It is you're learning a vocabulary that's not often taught. And in addition, you're you know, entering this elite world that uh, for some reason for centuries has been plagued by snobbery and so you're trying to push your way into a society in which you are told you don't belong and what's more it's incredibly challenging as well uh, just to study the material uh, and have access to these wines so uh, yeah it's certainly no easy feat and that's why I'm so passionate about uh, our nonprofit Wine Empowered to offer these free wine courses to women and minorities because it's not easy. It's so much. And if you don't have a mentor or someone helping to guide you, uh, it just becomes really, really scary. Yeah, but you even had um, a mentor who introduced you to fine dining, which was something you knew nothing about. Yeah, I, you know, again, growing up with not very much money, a restaurant was just not some place we uh, went. It was uh, very much uh, a special occasion. And so things such things that were so simple to me or maybe simple to others, uh, I had never experienced. I had never had an oyster before. I had never had champagne. Um, you know, I accidentally ordered sweetbreads thinking it was some sort of donut. And then <laughs> surprise, <laughs> I get cast pancreas. <laughs> <laughs> you mean they're not? <laughs> <laughs> so, this happened to me when I was visiting my um, my uncle in D.C. Uh, when I was for my 16th birthday, and we went to a restaurant, and I ordered soft shell crabs because I didn't know that there was a difference between that and deviled crabs that come, you know, with those little shells. <laughs> and I, nobody said a word. And all of a sudden, I was confronted with this thing with all the legs. <laughs> so it's it is yeah. difficult. So, but um, you learned, and you had, I think, one of the the things that propelled you in in your field is um well two things one is that you always knew when you had to move on and move up i don't know how you teach that (laughs) i yeah i don't know how how one teaches that i mean i think for so long growing up, moving past so many difficult experiences, I just felt as if I had to put my head down and get through it in order to survive. And, you know, it's only now in retrospect and with writing this book, uh, you also stop to think, well, what was lost during that process? And it changes you, too, as well. And, you know, some of these things that were very challenging and difficult I got through, but but they changed me and they left scars and, and such. And, you know, I think it's, it's about, you know, when you're a leader teaching resilience and toughness, but also uh, there's, there's a boundary too. So I, I don't know how to teach that. <laughs> it's a tough thing. I think some people are born with it or they learn it over time. Um, but, yeah, again, it, it definitely helps to have a lot of uh, strong mentors. 
And the, yeah. the other thing is, you're not the first person that um, that we know of that never had any experience with fine wines or wines, period, uh, that all of a sudden they had a tasting experience that propelled them into this profession. Um, who, was, who was the winemaker rabbit from Texas? The one from the, Texas? Yeah, they, wasn't he from Texas, the African-American? Who, what did oh, he right, taste? right, right, right. I don't, he had one taste of something, Burgundy, no, Bordeaux. And, and Bordeaux, it, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Bordeaux. And, and it struck him like lightning and directed his whole career. And he had no background in any of this thing. He, no, he wasn't even in the restaurant business, I don't think. No. I remember he, I remember he was African-American, and that was considered very, very unusual to be, to be in the wine business. Yeah, almost as bad as being a young woman. <laughs> <laughs> almost as bad as, yeah, exactly, almost as bad as being a woman. Yeah, no. I think there's, yeah, it's definitely a very, uh, the wine world is definitely a group that all looks the same, and so it's, you know, it's definitely my passion to diversify it a bit. Yeah. I, I, I always wanted to ask someone like you, if, if you, if you sold a really expensive wine, how did that feel? Let's, let's, let's suppose somebody actually selected a Chateau Lafitte off, off your wine list. How would that make you feel? Aside from much richer. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting, actually. I mean, it depends on the restaurant, too. I can only speak from my experience uh, at Coat. When we sell a bottle of Chateau Lafitte, which we actually do uh, more often than you would think, it's uh, the restaurant's not making that much money, actually. The margins are so slim on those uh, high-end bottles. Right, um, right. It's more, of just to, it's more of just to have that kind of like uh, that wine on, on the list, you know, to kind of curate that collection. So, But honestly, I really do believe there can be just as much pleasure in a $2,000 bottle as there can be in a $20 bottle, having plenty of both. I think it's all about who you share it with and the experience. And, you know, some wines that are $25,000 are incredible. And they should be that expensive because they're like the Mona Lisa. There's only a few of them. It's supply and demand. But, you know, there's also incredible bottles that are $20. So, you know, price is a funny thing. And, uh, you know, I even tell the similes that work for me now at Coat everyone's range of what that looks like is different. And for some people, if I suggest a $100 bottle of wine, uh, they're insulted because that's way too cheap for them. And then they point to a $1,000 <laughs> bottle and they want that. <laughs> so, and then some people, if I suggest a $100 bottle, that's, I mean, that's more than they could possibly imagine spending on a bottle of wine their whole life. So, you know, it's, it's really a fine balance. And <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a nuance uh, learning how to sell wine. Yeah, that's the first one of the first things that when I do a wine article, I say is that you have to make sure the psalm knows what what your your financial situation is and what what range are you looking in, you know, because you can do it in all kinds of ranges. Well, that, 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 there are questions that you ask, right, Victoria? Yeah, that, I that think will that, help, that will help that will help you to understand what range someone's going to be comfortable in. 
Yeah, I think that oftentimes people can be very cagey about budget and price point, especially if they're maybe on a date or they don't know the clients they're dining with very well. Uh, but there's different ways you can kind of, um, you know, uh, get around it and kind of ask them some uh, key questions. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's, I like to tell people, please, if you feel comfortable to do so, do mention your price point because families are not trying to rip you off. They're just trying to, you know, trying to discern in 15 seconds what bottle of wine to serve you out of 2,000 selections. Uh, <laughs> so we just we need some help. <laughs> yeah, what, 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 what these days is your favorite? I mean, they're, they're, is there something you, you particularly like just now? I, I remember, remember yeah. reading your section on Lagerdoc, and you, and you had a wine called Pixar Loop, which one, one time we were drinking a lot of because we really liked it. But is, is there, yeah. is there, is there uh, one or two that really that really strike you now as being ones that would be really good value? Yeah, right now during quarantine, uh, you know, I'm looking for versatility in wine. So I'm drinking uh, a fair bit of Austrian Gruner, Veltliner, and Riesling uh, because it just goes with everything. Uh, you know, Austrians drink this with uh, big fat sausages and sauerkraut, but also <laughs> garden vegetables. And <laughs> so uh, it's just an incredibly versatile wine and uh, very, very, uh, can be quite affordable as well. So uh, definitely recommend that. Now, do you, here's the question: do you, do you have any Pappy in your in your wine cellar? <laughs> oh, Pappy Van Winkle. Yes. Um, I'm actually I'm staying at a friend's place upstate New York right now that he does have a bottle, but um. Oh, good. You know, again, you know, the wine world is very different than the spirits world. Uh, you know, wine can be quite expensive because of supply and demand, uh, but it's different in the spirits world when you are controlling the production and quantities and then controlling the market. It's, it's certainly very curious. Um, do you know Sarah Thomas? Uh, she's a sommelier from Laburnadan, correct? Yeah, exactly. You know her? Yeah, she's fabulous. She's, also she, um, a writer. She's too. fabulous, huh? She's she also take, a writer. Did, she writes did, children's books. Did, did, did she, she take over from Aldo? No, uh, she's part-time at Laburnadan because her main passion, I think, is writing children's books. Oh, no kidding. Your passion. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, the one thing that I was thinking of um, uh, Gabriel Hamilton, uh, when you, you showed um, talent in writing as much as anything when you were very young. That's a good combination. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I think for writing for me was always a way to kind of work through my thoughts and feelings and take a step back and kind of, uh, you know, learn and grow from my experiences. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I didn't think for so long people, anyone was interested in women's stories. And so I worked in this book for five years, and um, I'm so happy that it's out in the world now and that people are curious about women's perspectives. Oh, good, yes. Now, um, when you're writing, you have like a bifurcated life then. If you're writing children's books, you're not writing about this, the thing you live with all the day, every day, wine. <laughs> so are you writing about reflections in your own experiences growing up? 
Um, well, no. So now I'm working on a third book, uh, a novel, and that's my thing. Uh, I think Sarah Thomas is the one that likes the children's books, um, and she's quite good at it. Oh, she does. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I missed the, your, um, what you said about that. She does have that whole series of children's books, you're right. Yeah, yeah so you're not doing children's books. You're doing a novel. I'm doing a novel next, yes. Taking okay. a break from memoir. <laughs> yeah, you know, the first time um, I interviewed um, Gabrielle, um, I said, you know, this was her very first book, not the cookbook, but the one that was more the memoir. And I said, you know, everybody's always telling me um, that I should write my life story in you know, my own memoir. And I said, the one thing that stops me in my tracks always is I could never be that open and honest and, and be so exposed. I could never do it. And so what's the point? And she I said, how do you do it? And she said, well, you know, I didn't write about everything. <laughs> so what have you held back? Oh, my gosh. I've held so much back. I mean, it's interesting. When, when I first wrote the book, uh, I presented it to the publisher, and they were like, oh, yes, no, you can't write about that. <laughs> so... There's so much I did not write about. Everything I wrote about was just what was, you know, completely uh, able to be proven. And, uh, you know, so think about all the things in which I, I held back. There's, there's quite a bit. Um, so that, that's, that's my point. <laughs> I guess that's how you get through it, because I could never be that honest and open. Well, that, that's, you've yeah. got to save something for the next book, right? Exactly. <laughs> you, can't, you can't leave it. You can't just put 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 it all out there in one book. Exactly. No, well, but what, what's your main character in the book you write in the fiction? Um, I haven't settled on a central character yet, but it has to do with um a winemaking region and uh, three children. So we'll see. <laughs> you have. Is it because of you and your siblings, or do you have three children? Uh, I think, you know, um, you draw a lot of inspiration from real life, but uh, it's quite heavily fictionalized, filled with drama and intrigue. Uh, so you'll have to see. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, I, I, I'm really in admiration that you have so many different talents and that you've been able to get through all of these um, obstacles that you had and growing up and, and going into a really tough profession, um, listeners, I think that you'll be inspired by this book, and you'll also learn a lot. It's called Wine Girl, and it's by Victoria James, who had this distinction of being America's youngest sommelier. <laughs> so, and that, that was a tough position, wasn't it, Victoria? But anyhow, we'll let that go to another interview. And don't go away, because we'll be we'll be right back with not a sommelier, but a winemaker. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.
Welcome back. Next up, Eric Kramer, who deserves a, a special medal for enduring all of the technical glitches we had in getting this program organized and recorded. Hi, Eric. We hope you enjoy it. Yeah, and he's he's with uh, one of our favorite wineries, Willa Kenzie. And he's always up to something. I just read he's doing virtual wine tastings with a a bunch of stars, including um, Karen McNeil, who wrote the uh, incomparable um, wine Bible. And the interesting thing is his his subject is white wines from Oregon. Oh, that's the hottest thing in Oregon. Most people know Oregon for Pinot Noirs. Yeah, no, the hottest thing is everybody's in love with Chardonnay. With light oak, as I remark in the interview, a lot reminds a lot of the unwooded Chardonnays from Western Australia. But anyway, here's Eric. Eric? Yes, indeed. He's a a man with a considerable amount of patience. (laughs) Well, you know, I've been married for um, 23 and a half years, and I have a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old. Okay, there you go. (laughs) <laughs> two, two dogs and a cat, so my my patience. This qualification, be, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, no, I think I, I think that there's something to do with wine and patience. <laughs> yeah, you you had a good quote you used to use, Rabbit, about that. But uh, well, there was a there was a guy called Paul Paul Masson, who, whose tagline was, "We will sell no wine before it's time." Yes, yeah. indeed. But there's the, that wonderful guy from Slovenia, the winemaker of Slovenia, that also said that uh, uh, winemakers are people who believe in the future. That, you know, that was that was Gravner. And he Gravner. Said, pe- yeah. People people who build houses of stone believe in the future. Mm-hmm. And winemakers. And the guy, sure. The guy's, the guy's really really kind of crazy. But he he ripped he he was the first guy to rip up the floor of his winery and put in amphora. You've heard of that, the the amphora that, yep. that uh, no. in Georgia. Yeah, yeah, yes, I have absolutely. Well, that was that was Jakob Gravner quoted. We, yes. we visited his we visited his winery and he wouldn't talk to us. He didn't he didn't like Germans. <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're going to do. Anyway, w- welcome Eric Kramer, winemaker of Willa Kenzie Estate in Oregon, and I'm going to ask him to explain where, where that is and what's the story behind the name. Uh, sure. So we are um, about uh, an hour's drive roughly from Portland. Uh, Oregon, uh, south and west of Portland, in uh, in a growing region in um, Oregon called the Willamette Valley. Uh, the estate, the Willakenzie Estate, is located in a sub-appellation of the Willamette Valley called the Yamhill Carlton District. Uh, that's that's kind of where where we are. Um, the winery was uh, established in 1992, um, and uh, the name the name for the winery actually comes from the soil series on which uh, the estate and the vineyards are are planted here at Willakenzie. 
So, it's, so the vast majority of what we have planted at the estate is on a, a soil series called Willikensee. Um, incidentally, the, the name for the soil series, when it, was a, when it was first named, the soil series is named after the confluence of the Willamette and Mackenzie ah. Rivers. And that's where that. the name Willikensee yeah. comes from. I never knew that. All these years, nobody's ever told us that. There are a number of wineries that that take the name of the of the underlying uh, soil and uh, and rock type. Uh, Mm. It's quite with that naming convention is quite common in Mm. the in the Oregon regions. I know why. Why in particular? I'm not sure why. Why they particularly chose that method of doing it. Because it's not it's not common around the world, I don't think. Yeah, you know, um, I I don't know. I mean, I I can, I can say that uh, you know, I mean, wine is about place, and it you know tells a story of of you know the grapes and the wine ultimately can tell a story about where they came from, and so you know that convention can be used you know nicely in wrapping it up in terms of the the actual name for the the soil in which the, the vineyards grow and flourish. But why, why it's exactly uh, come about here in the land. I mean, I, you know, I, we're, we're farmers here first. I mean, a wine, I'd say wine growers. I, love, you know, I like the term wine grower when speaking about, you know, what we do. Now, the, 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 the people who founded the winery were, in, the, in their own way, interesting kind of characters. I yeah, uh, we, we we actually met Giselle on the estate about yeah. probably 15, 15 about fifteen years ago when we were doing we were touring the Oregon wine region. But, okay, uh, yeah. But you're, you're you're sort of like the new kid on the block. Where where did you come from? Um, so yeah, I've been making wine in Oregon uh, since two thousand four. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wow. So, so I guess new kid on the block at Willikensee. So I joined Willikensee um, a little over three years ago in early 2017. Um, prior to that, uh, I was um, overseeing winemaking and viticulture at uh, Domaine Serene in the Dundee Hills. Okay. All right. And then before that, uh, you know, I, sent, I essentially cut my teeth and spent my earlier wine growing years uh, here in Oregon at a place called Adelsheim Vineyard. Oh, sure. A very, a very familiar name. Yes, yeah. So, the, yeah, that's, that's essentially where I've worked since I've been here in Oregon, those three places. Uh, our first exposure to Oregon Pinot Noirs was Elk Cove. Oh, yeah, vineyard. absolutely. And, and they, they, uh, the son who is now run, running the property there told us a very interesting story. His father. Do you know? Talk to Campbell. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually know his son Adam a bit better than Doctor Campbell. That was who we were talking to at the time, and he yeah. he he told us the story of uh, the founding of Elk Cove. Apparently, his his wife, Mrs. Mrs. Campbell, when when her husband was prompting. The idea of starting a vineyard in this particular area. Just exactly, Dr. Campbell, just exactly how many Oregon Pinot Nuts have you ever tasted? And he, and he had to admit, none. <laughs> so, 
that so they call it a leap of faith. I think is is to under understate the situation. Yeah. But Fabulous. Let, 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 let's go back to this the, this wonderful name, Willa Kenzie. And sure. Talk to us about what what it is you think makes it special. Um. Yeah. Uh, you know. It's one of the. You said this is shard which is one of the few white wines, because I'm a red wine person, that I actually enjoyed. <laughs> I'm terrible, I know. Oh, that's okay. There's a wine for everybody out there. <laughs> um, you know, I, to me, I, you know, the, the nature of the topography at the Willikensia Estate, um, it's pretty unique. Uh, and, uh, you know, for, for me, what that topography does, and what, what does that mean? You know, we've got a couple of different ridge lines that do some different things, and um, the uh, the elevation of the estate in terms of where the the grapes are planted ranges oh from you know 300 some odd feet above sea level on up to um, right just over 700 feet above sea level, um, and it's been well farmed for you know since since the early 90s. Um, but, you know, in addition, uh, you know, so we have our Willamette Valley Pinot Noir, but we make a number of what I call terroir-specific uh, Pinots from different parts of the estate. There's a, the, it's the, the sheer nature of the diversity that exists on the estate is really the defining feature of the estate. And, you know, when you, you, know, when you, when you see it and you walk the roads and you drive around on a, on a little ATV kind of thing, you can you, you, the, it expresses itself so many different ways, and you can make a number of very intriguing expressions of wine depending on where you are um, on the property. I mean, that that's really encapsulates what's so special to me about uh, Willa Kenzie. So, so you're are you a farmer first and a winemaker second, or does that distinction not matter? Or I mean, or I mean, I get you know, to me, you know, the you know, the grapes are, you know, ninety percent of what we can do is driven by what happens outside, um, and and then then the grapes come in, and and you know, I, we can either mess things up, which we would choose not to, but then it's really about defining style, you know, once we get okay. into wine, but quality is really defined in the vineyard, and. Um, and then we define style when we think bring things into the winery. You know, for me, I like the term wine grower because the two of them are are pretty inextricably linked. Okay, now if, if we if if we if we wanted to give someone a, a stake in the ground that says this is why I might like Willa Kenzie, can 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 you perhaps without being invidious? Give us a couple of examples of Pinot Noirs from, first of all, Oregon, and then secondly, Pinot Noirs from around the world that, that Willa Kenzie wines are most like. Yeah, you know, I guess, um, so I mean, to just to, to, to broadly describe, you know, Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley and what makes it special, can I start with that? Oh, sure, sure, that's a fine place to start. Yeah, I mean, I brought, you know, I think <clears throat> for me, what's so great about Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley is, you know, it's, you know, we have long days um, uh, at 
pretty moderate to low temperature. Um, and, uh, you know, I think when I speak about the climate here in the Willamette Valley, it really helps to define uh, viticulture. And we have two parts of the year, if you will. We have the, the maritime part. You know, everybody always asks the question, does it rain all the time in Oregon? If it rained all the time, we would have a hard time growing grapes successfully. successfully. But it does um, rain quite a lot. But it does rain quite a lot, and I would, that's, called, that's the maritime part of the year. So we move between maritime and Mediterranean. So that shift out of the maritime part of the year uh, starts to occur now, and we're segueing into Mediterranean, but it's a, you know, it's a slow transition. And then when we really get into the, the height of the growing season in the summer, you know, kind of latter part of June, early July, it's, fairly, it's, it's very dry. Um, and, you know, we can go for, you know, days, weeks on end without a drop of rain. Really? Uh, I didn't know that, actually. Although yeah, I've been there when, very, when yeah. it has been wet, actually. Yeah. So, the, I, mean, um, I mean, a typical summer day here is, uh, you know, 74, 75 degrees during the day and um, mid, mid to upper 40s or even low 50s at night. So there's a lot of diurnal fluctuation, which is great for holding on to the natural acidity. Um, yeah, so so, yeah. so it's, it's 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 quite cool. It's like in 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 many ways it's like it's like the Pinot Noir growing areas of California. In some, yeah, we had that certainly that diurnal fluctuation in the summer uh, because the relative humidity is low, which is great mm -hmm. for managing disease pressure. But we have but we have longer days at lower temperature. Our, our daytime highs are not nearly as warm. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where, so I, I, when, when you hear uh, flavor descriptors for, for Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley, you'll hear words like freshness and fruit intensity and energy. And I think, you know, a lot of that simply comes from this long day length at, at, at low temperature. Um, and, then, and then we segue back uh, into the maritime part of the growing season, sometimes right in the middle of harvest when it'll start pouring down rain and... Um, that, that forces you to um, simply be a better wine grower because we do deal with disease pressure, but it comes towards the end of the growing season oftentimes um, in the form of botrytis and that kind of stuff. Um, no, we, 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 we forgot we another, another wine you make, which was also delicious, which, which, is, a, which is a Chardonnay. Yeah. Talk, well, that's the one talk, I was talking talk, about. Is yeah. I'm not a big Chardonnay fan, and I liked it. Yeah, you liked, I liked it? it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I'm glad that you liked it. Yeah. I maybe think um, well, the opposite. She, she's an ABCer. She's an ABC, yes. And, and uh, you know, so when 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 I've had the the great fortune to get out there and speak about Chardonnay from the Willamette Valley, and I'll offer up uh, a taste of Chardonnay. And some will say, well, I, I don't like Chardonnay because of this whole ABC thing. And oh, that's true. <laughs> it, happens, it happens frequently enough because, you know, I mean, uh, Willamette Valley Chardonnay, while it has a, you know, amazing potential and a bright future, um, uh, it's, still, it's still building in terms, of, in terms of it being a category, a recognized category. Exactly. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, they're, they're, I would say like the, the 
folks who really know and understand Oregon wine understand that um, Willamette Valley Chardonnay, it's, it's, it's coming. And like to me, if, if Willamette Valley Pinot Noir is a category, it's a clearly different people think Oregon and Pinot Noir in, you know, in that they're synonymous with one another, my hope would be that Chardonnay is, is falling in right behind that. And if you think about, you know, where, where are the great Chardonnays and Pinot Noirs thought of first, it's Burgundy, and they ripen together kind of at the same time. Um, why, why can't we do that in the Willamette Valley? Uh, so, and, and there have been some great, you know, positive changes over the last several decades in the Willamette Valley that have really improved Chardonnay potential. So I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you, uh, you, you had ours and you had a chance to enjoy it. Um, but, uh, you know, the Chardonnay from the Willamette Valley can have all of, you know, some of that really great floral, mineral, um, perfumed expression that you see, um, in something uh, like a white burgundy, but I think that there can be perhaps a, just a touch more breadth and volume. I mean, we, we, it's, and not, we're not quite as cool here as as, as burgundy, um, but uh, but we, we we certainly have more tension and I would say freshness and energy than might be synonymous with with our neighbors to the south. So mm-hmm. uh, and 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 I. I, I, I so, it, it, you know, we've, we've got a lot going for us, both with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Well, you know, I mean, in addition to all the stuff you're talking about, I mean, the handling of this winemaking is rather special there. <laughs> you sure. can have all this other stuff going and still mess it up. Yeah. No, um, uh, um, so it's very, I mean, very, very, very deliberate uh, approaches. You know, that's you know, the, the deliberate approaches that, that we're taking here at, at Willa Kenzie you have a very clear style um, in mind. I think, you know, if I'm speaking about Pinot Noir and what we're aiming for here at Willa Kenzie, you know, it's, it's um, clarity of fruit so that, you know, when, when you raise a glass to your nose, you, you, you know, it has that familiar Pinot Noir, red-fruited, intense floral kind of aroma. Um, but for me, Texture is something that really drives a lot of wine, my winemaking. How does it simply feel in the mouth? And that's you know, and that comes back. You see, to that's problems. a great way of describing it. I, nobody's told me about texture. I mean, I know about mouthfeel, but texture is something that, as an artist, I can pick up on. I understand. Yeah, um, in many ways, I you know, I spend more time thinking about texture, balance, mouthfeel than I do. About aroma. I mean, aroma. If, if something simply smells, whether it's cherries or raspberries or roses, all of those things smell nice. I'm not going to spend a lot of time thinking about them, but it's really about texture and, and, and com- textural completeness in the mouth. Um, and that goes for both Pinot Noir and, and Chardonnay. So they're very deliberate approaches taken uh, in order to get there. It, re- it reminded me most of Western Australia. Ah. Oh yeah, that's interesting. That, 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 that was where 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 there's very, very little use of of wood aging. You're you're de- you're dealing with the the fresh fruit in the bottle, if you like to think of it that way. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and uh, we're still. Go ahead. There's a, there's a particular one I won't I won't try to spell, but I'll pronounce it for you. Called Lewin Estate. Oh yes, I'm, I'm familiar. Which is probably the, one of the one of the leading Chardonnay houses in Australia, 
And Is that where we had dinner? Yeah, we, we had... We had, had dinner there. We, we had, had so dinner. much wonderful wine, and we had uh, kangaroos munching on the grass. And, and, and I had so much of this wine, I said to them, they wanted to know if I wanted another glass, and I said, do you have any vodka? <laughs> They were so totally appalled. He, he, I mean, <laughs> he, no, he, he, the, owner, the owner was quite nonplussed. He said, "We just don't keep it in the house." <laughs> I, 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 I want to, I want to uh, bring some, some, some good news for our Pennsylvania listeners to at least think about, considering that all the state stores are closed. By the way, sure. So there's no, there's, there's no way to get any Willow Kenzie, but when they open again, they'll be able to, because <laughs> Willow Kenzie pe- penetrated the, the deep dark recesses of the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board and, ma- and, ma- and managed to get their wines in the stores. I'm glad and we did. And listeners, they are, they are really qu- quite delicious, and I can hardly wait to be able to get to them again. And, yes. in, in, and in the meantime, Eric, all we can do is, is think about it. We, we can say thank you very much for joining us at the third attempt. And we, and we, and we wish you well. And uh, thank you so much for telling us the story. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. And for our final segment, um, we have also a praiseworthy uh, guest, Renee Barbier, Jr., who has conducted this interview in English, which is not his first language. It is not his second language. I guess it's sort of his third language. And you did really well, Renee. Uh, and this winery is exceptional as well, Clo Mogador. Um, well, it's very special for a number of reasons, particularly as he explains the terroir of the winery. We're going to be talking to Rene Barbier Jr., um, who has an interesting backstory. But Rene, we're talking about the um, Clo Mogador. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, the, Mogador, yes, well. Nalen in 2017 and Clo um, Mogador 2017. And these wines are getting rave reviews and they're from your vineyard. Uh, we're going to be asking you a little bit about your, uh, your history, uh, the winery. Where are you? Well, I am in, uh, in, uh, in my house in uh, another project uh, near to Clomogador. Uh, the project I have with my wife uh, is, is the Venus uh, La Universal project. It's another winery near to Clomogador. Uh, uh-huh. I am in Catalonia, in Tarragona, uh, right. an hour and a half to Bar- Barcelona. Yes, we love Spain. We love Barcelona, too. Okay. And, and, uh, yeah, Rene, the, the wine region is called Priorat. Yes, um, Priat is the. We have two regions. Uh, one of them is Priat, the more famous because uh, this is start my father and his friends 
in the end of the 70s. And the other region just touched to Priyat, uh, when just uh, I am here now, is, is Monsan area. We are two appellations very near each uh, one with each other. Uh, the big difference is the, the soil. The mountain of this lake is Priyat, and I am in the plain um, more easy to walk uh, is Monsan. Uh, but I, I, I am in Priyat, but my view, my, I see Monsan just in front of me, this big mountain from Schiste, from his lakes, that's Priyat. So tell us about the soil that's very special. Yes, this sure is one of the reasons, uh, because in the, my father and his friends started in the last of the 70s, uh, and I think uh, he was in loss because the terroir is magic. It's a terroir very dramatic. Uh, imagine a big uh, mountain, black, mm-hmm. uh, black stones, black uh, lakes, um, and a very, very hot water, but but very nice uh, old vineyard, of, uh, especially of Garnachas uh, in this region, was a very, very ancient place. Uh, I think the first plant was the, more than one uh, uh, started the uh, Garnachas, I think, so in the um, more than 1,000 years now here in Garnachas. It's a very long, long story. But now when what, my father arrived... Why did you choose this particular area? Well, it's, you know, it's uh, something that happened. No? My father was uh, originally from the Tarragona. Uh, Tarragona is the nearest city to Priyat. And, and, and uh, in, I think, it's 1977, my grandfather, uh, by one piece of learn here, only for for weekends, you know, you know, they made paellas and mm-hmm. like this. Oh, and yeah. my father come here every weekend because it was nice. And, oh, this is nice, this is nice. And after five years, he, he really believed is wow, that's the best place in the world to make wine. And he starts, he starts with some friends, and, and now we are, we are here. However, the Priyat is probably one of the region, sure, is the region uh, in Spain of the price was... Uh, High price, uh, probably, the, the, the more expensive wine. Uh, sure, we are a very small region, but it's a very good reputation. And, uh, but when my father arrived, it was nothing. Only it was wine in no bottle, no? you know, in, 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 in box, not, no bottle. It was a very, uh, nobody know this region 40 years ago. Right, right. That's, that's what we thought. Now, we, we can remember about... Almost 20 years ago, we we met the family which developed the Rhoda property in Rioja. Yes, true. Which you probably know, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, Rioja, uh, yes, 20 years ago was uh, my father. Uh, it's a long story, but the, the end of this long story is my family made wine always in the last three centuries. Uh, in yes. the beginning of France, after the, the phylloxera would come in Spain, the, this family created uh, Ronin Labier label. This label and this wine was loosened in the uh, 70s. And my father restarted to, to work in wine with a friend in Rioja. And he started a project in Rioja with uh, his friend. And 
in the beginning of the 80s, he started to make this uh, new idea in Spain, this uh, idea of single vineyard, and he right. started to make Clomoredor uh, in right, okay. 30 years ago. Now, you, if, I, if I'm reading the information correctly, you have, you have chosen t- two particularly modern approaches to creating wine, one called biodynamics and the other called yes. low sulfur. Can, can you tell us a little yes. bit about, about why you chose to go in that direction? Yes, my father, just in the beginning of the beginning, has two ideas. One of very important idea was in Spain was not usual, this idea of single vineyard, no? this idea of one part, this idea of clove, clove, one mm-hmm. place. And the other idea was my father, very important for my father, was the biodiversity, the idea of uh, the, the most life is possible in the vineyard. And uh, in that time, 40 years ago, it was very useful to have uh, not only vineyards, but vineyard, olive oils, almond trees, uh, fig trees, many things in the middle of the vineyard. And that idea is a wonderful idea for biodiversity. But uh, the second generation, my brother especially, he introduced the biodynamic idea. Uh, now it's like 10 years ago. Uh, my father introduced the, the biologic, the ecologic, or I don't know, bio, uh, in, in English it's bio, uh, biologic, no? but the biodynamic was introduced for my brother. And me, I am charged for more in the, I made the wine, I am the, the winemaker, if you want. Right. Uh, o- always my idea was to try to ma- make the wine more free as possible. The, I think the wines I really like in my life is the wines more free. I, I don't look, uh, my idea is not the perfection wine. Something I think is the wine is too, too much control, sometimes it's, it's boring. And the idea of uh, to, be, to be free, one thing is very important for me is the indigenous yeast and, no, and don't put nothing, no correct acids, no, we try to make less possible thing is possible. That is true. The sulfur is very, very difficult. Uh, if you don't want to use any sulfur, it's very difficult. I try. I have some, some experiments. Uh, I have some wine that's not sulfur at all. But in Mogador, I use uh, the less, uh, less I, I can when I, I, I am comfortable. No? And I, I'm very, very low sulfur. Normally, I put, I put once uh, in the bad vintage twice. That is a very, very low. Uh, but yes, this is my idea. I think I, my dream in the future is I don't use suffer. But for now, uh, I need more years or more generation to, to, to be this idea. But yes, the idea of uh, don't put nothing, only grapes in the wine is for me is a very good idea. I need very good grapes and very good terroir for that. But, uh, but yes, it's my idea. It's my, my philosophy of life. Now, you, you, you planted some grape varieties which are well known around the world like Carnacha as it's called in Spain, Grenache as it's called in, in France but you also yes. have a number of other grapes in your wines can you tell us yes. some more about those which are perhaps a little more obscure yes, yes sure my, my father when he arrived here and his friends Imagine a, a, a very poor place and the wine was not good reputation and uh, very rustic, very, very structural, very of alcohol. And the first idea the, uh, was 
imagine in that time, in the 80s, uh, he focused for the Grenache, and also he, he has an idea, I think was a good idea for this time, to introduce a French grape, no? uh, grapes like uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrah, Merlot, mm-hmm. and that was the beginning of the project of the Clos Mogador, Clos Martinet, Clos Dauphy, uh, and This was the beginning of the, that project. But the second generation, like me, my, my wife, especially my wife, we discover, uh, discover this generation, the, the local grapes, the Carignan, especially. Uh, and Carignan is wonderful. It's a perfect binome uh, to use with Grenache. Grenache Carignan works very, very nice. And now the, 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 the next generation, not me, but now, the youngest guy, use only, only grapes, uh, local grapes, special Grenache Carignan blended. And it's, it's, it's wonderful because now we know to work with the Carignan in a good way. And, you, and now we think the wine was so good and the first wines were better. And, and now it's, it's the, the, the Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrah, and Merlot it's only exists in this wine's pioneer like uh, Mogador or Martinet has a little bit of these grapes. Sure, I have much less in the, in the beginning. In the beginning, I remember I started with Grenache, uh, Cabernet, Syrah. And, but now it's, it's Grenache, Carignan, and Syrah, and a little bit Cabernet. No? Uh, I keep a little bit Cabernet, but for me it's something uh, is in the wine of Mogador in 30 years. I have to keep some, some percent. I think I have 10% of Cabernet now. But uh, yes, we, we discover also in white uh, grapes, a lot of white uh, indigenous grapes are interesting. It, it's, it's a very passionate because we have... Uh, some grapes uh, near to disappear, and now we, we find some plants. Sometimes we find two or three plants, of we don't know what, which grape is it, and we, we and it's very exciting. So, so, so you, you find the grapes, but you don't know what kind they are? <laughs> uh, no idea, no idea. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> no, you, no, you, the, the wines we tasted, the wines that you sent us, one was called Clome Mogador, and that's yes. principally Grenache. Then, then you sent yes. us a, a white wine, the name I can't pronounce. Nelin. 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 Nelin is, is my passion because uh, the first generation created the, the red, but I am very involved for the white. I think uh, the white, the Mediterranean white is very interesting. Uh, it has a lot of personality. And for me, uh, uh, I try to make the, the white so good at the red, uh, so nice for aging, so Mediterranean, so full body, uh, big wines, but of good freshness. And that's uh, it's very exciting because also we, when we start in the beginning in 2000, we focus for the Grenache white, and also we plant French grape like Marsan, Roussan, and Viognier. But today, Nelin is, is seven grapes, uh, seven. Uh, all local. Uh, and, and, and some of the grapes is uh, very, very strange pronunciation. But, and some of these grapes, uh, it's my first time I, 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 I made wine because uh, it's uh, very uncommon vines, but uh, with no exist, uh, and it's very exciting. And now Nelin is, is seven different grapes. Uh, in the beginning was like a four, but uh, some French and some, some white, and some uh, indigenous. But today it's all um, local grapes. Of, um, wow. But the biggest part of, of two wines is Grenache. Grenache white for Nelin and Grenache red for uh, Mogador. Right. One, one of our trips to Spain, 
we were in Valencia and we went into the hills near Valencia and there they use a lot of a, of a wine grape that, that I think the French call Mouvedre but they call Monsant. Yes. Now Monsant is a, is a name associated with your region. Are you doing anything with Mouvedre? Yes, I have a little bit, but it's illegal. Oh, it's illegal? <laughs> but, uh, yes, I don't know why, but uh, it's wonderful grape for the south of Spain. Uh, you have plenty of different names, but uh, in the south, it uh, has a lot of monastries. That's the name more useful. And it's wonderful because it's, it has a good freshness, greens, aromas, greens, and it's, it's a very good, good balance. A little bit less alcohol and the Grenache. And I made a, uh, I made a natural wine, no sofra at all, with my wife of Grenache Mouvedre. Uh, and every year I made that, that rosé, a rosé natural wine. And I, and I like, I like this way. But for now it's not legal. But why not in the future? Because, because we find some Mouvedre very old. And I'm sure, uh, the Mouvedre was here before the Fluxera. Uh, and, but for now it's not legal. Why, why I can't write, but uh, I told you, yes, I have a little bit of Mouvedre, <laughs> but it's not, it's not, either. it's a good, good grape. I like it. But, but who, who declares whether it's legal or not? No, I put Garnacha. Oh. <laughs> no, it's, it's a really a few, a small project. I, have, I, can, I think I have 300 plants. Okay. Now, you mentioned your, your beloved wife, Isabel, just a little bit ago, and, and, she, and she's involved in making wine, but that's really not her job. She, she does something else altogether, correct? Sorry? Your, your, your wife, wife. Isabel, she, she has another career no, my, uh, my, my, no, my, my wife, my wife is Sarah Perez from the Mass Market, and my, but uh, my, Isabel is my mom. My oh, mom. your mother, okay. My mom, is, my mom is the artist of the family. She always uh -huh. uh, made, made the, um, the labels or the website or, the, or painting. He's the real artist. Uh, my father is the creator. My wife is the artist. My brother is the druid, oh, <laughs> and me, I the, I the chef or the winemaker. I don't know. We are the family, always involved in the family. I have a very young brother. He's 22. Uh, for now, he likes music, but we, but uh, also he loves to uh, drink uh, and and eat, and sometimes <laughs> he help me to 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 sell the wine, <laughs> but but he he love of the for the music. But the other part of the family, everybody made wine. My wife made wine also, my father-in-law, my brother-in-law. We are a wine family, <laughs> sure. Now, now, somewhere in the information we got, I, I read that you say that it's very important to live among the vines, among the grapes, and, and, and you talk an awful lot passionately about terroir. Can you can you yes. tell our listeners more about those thoughts? Yes, terroir. For me, terroir is um, something to recognize when you taste the wine. Uh, something to recognize the region, especially. And for me, terroir is a climate plus um, plus terroir for the shift of the period, plus indigenous grape, plus also this free a little bit. Free uh, respect 
in the in the cellar. No, uh, if you have very good grape and very good terroir in the cellar, you try to don't be to don't put too much hands. No, uh, not right. too much. Nothing is too much. Not too much oak. Not too much extraction. Not too much. It's, 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 I think in, in in winery is to be free and balanced. It's two words. But um, this, you have a, if you have a very good terroir and a good good work in the vineyard, uh, in, wi- in wineries, in, in my, my job is easy. My job is very easy. So you still you still mentioned though that you use a, n- a number of different mediums to age the wine. So you're using some concrete. You're using some stainless steel. You're yes, yes, yes. But it's like you, if you imagine a chef, you not know, have only one one tool. It's boring. I like to use all. It's, it's, it's funny, you know? uh, And I think, and I think also is each year and or each idea you have the better tool. No, I don't think one is best. I look. I like all. Now many people don't like the oak. I like the oak. It's only used in the good in the good moment in the good uh, percent. No. Uh, uh, and for the wines, some wines is a good idea oak, some wines not. Some years it's a good idea oak. It's sure, if I compare 20 years ago, I remember the new oak was more present because the wine that was more, more, more tannic. Today, I use the oak. I love the oak, but I use bigger size. No, I use more foudre, also like a, it's like a 10 times, times bigger to the normal barrique. But uh, sure, it's very interesting also to use the, um, the clay because I use the clay from the region, and that's also very interesting to use uh, things we are just uh, uh, we have uh, near to the, to the house. The glass also the glass. All the material is, I think, is all all materials is a good. It's, it's interesting to use it. Now, we've left the important information until until last. But I'm sure people will listen all the way through because they'll be fascinated with your with your whole story. But tell tell us about where you're going to be able to find your wines to buy. Uh, where? Well, yeah. Where, tell tell, which, tell, us, tell, which, tell our listeners where 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 they where they are available. Oh yes. Well, well, we are very lucky. We we, are, we produce only uh, the total production in the winery is 50,000 bottles. It's, 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 it's quite small. In period, it's like a medium, but it's a really small. Um, and we sell, I think, in 40 countries like this. But it's true that the biggest country uh, was the biggest, the place very important to, was for me was, was uh, U.S. and Switzerland, probably, and Spain. These three, this is the three countries more important, no? But in Europe, it's possible to find in places. Sure, we have a small account, no? And but in the states also, I try to have in everywhere. Sure, I suppose to be in New York, you know, I was more possibility to find. But uh, I try to are in the in all the good places and the good wine wine collectors. That idea, that's try them in the good places. That's, uh, that's the people like wine. The people love wine. That's for me wonderful. We fit into that category. No, I don't know. Wait, it's, my, right? it's my dream. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Now we enjoyed. We enjoyed. We enjoyed both of the wine samples that you sent. And uh, the only problem we have to figure out is where can we get a continuing supply. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. Sweetheart? Yes. You still there? I'm still here. Yeah. I mean, I'm letting you wine guys talk. <laughs> <laughs> You're letting your wine guys talk. <laughs> so, um, but um, it, is it hard to find outside of New York? No, I sell it quite a good quantity in New York. I don't know if it's hard to find or not. I don't know. Uh, the Spanish wine in general, I think it's probably more difficult to find out the French wine. But uh, more and more, I'm, I, I know the American guys love Privat because I have a lot of, lot of visitors in, in, in my house. I think the, 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 half, the, I think the last vintage have, the, the, the half people was American guys. I think the American, many people, of wine consumers know no Privat, and also I suppose to be Barcelona is very near, also nice for the visitors. But I, I think the yes, the American guy was was the the, the, the first uh, uh, choice in, in in my or first uh, visitors in my in my in my cellar. Yes, no, no, t- more on the European. Tell, tell our listeners the website where they can find out more about your your charming and interesting story and more about your wines. Your website. Yes, in the, we, my my mom made the website, and I, I, yes, I have her. I think it's uh, is uh, com and it's a lot of information, especially from uh, uh, the 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 the. the, the, the the words, the vineyard. It's spelled C-L-O-S-M-O-G-A-D-O-R dot com. And uh, uh, Renee, tell me, um, after we complete the interview, would you give us your email so that we can let you know when you could listen to it? Sorry? Okay. Um, we don't have we don't have his email address. Hi, you, you need the email address? Yes, please. Yes, yes uh, it's clomogador at clomogador at com. Oh, good, got it. Well, you're you're having a good time now. Have you been isolated, quarantined? We have a lot of water. It's totally unusual, but it's nice for the vineyard. But we are like a ten times more water than normal in the in the six months, the first six months. But it's nice because we are very dry weather the last two years. But yes, we have very good weather for not, good. for us. Very good. Well, I wish I were there in Spain and <laughs> visiting your vineyard. So maybe yeah, when we get rid of this quarantine, we'll be there. Yes, it was wonderful. If you can to come with the normality, it's, it's coming and it's wonderful. Yes, it would be I want to also to go to the states. <laughs> <laughs> you can come here too. Yes. Yes, I want to. I want to also. Rene Barbier, Jr. Thank you so much for being a part of our program. It's been most interesting, and uh, we wish you continued success with all your adventures with grapes. Yeah. Uh, Renee, merci, merci, and also um, uh, muchas gracias. Muchas gracias, de verdad. <laughs> okay, listen, just, just in case you are wondering, 
wine people are very special people. Yes, they are indeed. <laughs> and, and they're also quite talkative. Yes, <laughs> and we enjoy and we're, and we're talkative too, so we'll talk to you again, same time, same place next week. And until then, bye-bye.